According to the Adoption and Foster Care Analysis Reporting System, there are approximately 420,000 kids currently in foster care in the United States, averaging around a half a million children annually. Meanwhile, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics reports there were approximately 715,600 social workers employed in the United States. In 2020, Lance Hilsinger spent more than 34 years on the front lines in the trenches as a social worker. He's seen just about every type of case you would be exposed to as a social worker. He has experience at every level of the process, including what happens inside and outside of a courtroom during the foster care and adoption process. He's written two books on the subject matter in an effort to make the world a better place and the foster care, adoption, and social work system seem less daunting in an attempt to attract more qualified candidates to offer deserving kids a place to call home. Hillsinger joined me this week to detail his experience in the field, why he wrote the two books and his hopes for the future when it comes to the social work process. He's got a lot of valuable and insightful information to share. So without further delay, I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. a moment to welcome you to the program and I'm super excited to learn about your experience in the child welfare and social work uh, system. Great uh, to see you this afternoon, my friend, and thank you so very much for being here. Again, you're quite welcome. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So, Lance, I know that you spent nearly uh, uh, more than three decades in the child welfare system, so I'm fascinated to begin our conversation by asking you, would you take a 360 degree view of the current system? What do you like, what do you don't like, and what do you think needs or could use improvement? Well, that, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wrote the book, wrote my book In Place of the Parent Inside Child Protective Services, because I wanted to see the system improved. Uh, during the duration of writing the book, the system did improve in some ways and it didn't improve in other ways. One of the things that makes the system work better 
is if there's enough foster homes. There is a critical shortage of foster homes, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I hope by writing about the system, someone say, oh, gee, I'd, maybe I could be a foster parent. That, that would be a way I, I could help, because that makes things a lot better. And I, most of child welfare, most of our cases are non-court cases. They don't involve kids with foster care. We deal with people informally, or we investigate something, and it's not serious enough, or there's not enough evidence, um, but I dealt only with court cases all for except one year of my career. So that is my focus of kids that enter foster care, the juvenile court system. How that has improved, I think the system is a little bit better about taking cases to court and trying to work people uh, not using the court system as a last resort because we try to work with people informally. We always have, we've gotten better at that. Um, and I think that uh, we realize that when you place kids with strangers in foster care or even with a relative, that's a traumatic event. You, sometimes that is necessary, but you still have to recognize that um, disrupting a family, even a family that's kind of dysfunctional, you know, might be harmful. You might do more harm and though you don't want to do more harm than good. Um, and so I think that uh, the system is better now. Uh, the cases that what come to court are more serious. Um, and also that they have a process now of the code section, the laws that are, at least in California have improved. Uh, they have gotten situations where people who are really bad uh, and have done something very horrible to a child or are convicted of serious crimes and they're sitting in jail for some serious crime unrelated to their child, but they happened to father a child 10 years ago, and there's, you know, they still got 10 years on the sentence. That we don't have to, the system deals with that better now. Um, so there's been improvements in the laws and has made that a little bit clearer on, uh, sometimes there are situations where uh, the best interest of the child is not to offer the parents reunification services. Most of the times it is, that's the default option. But now, at least in California, there's provisions which if the parent has done some awful things uh, or has lost custody of a child before due to neglect, you don't necessarily have to offer, uh, give them a second chance. And that's a very helpful. Yeah, and in your, uh, since you've retired, as you mentioned, you wrote to a book. And tell me, the, the process of writing the book, how, how did the process of writing a book go, and, and the book go, and what's the message uh, you hope uh, people get out of reading the book and really uh, taking action after they read the book? Well, the process of writing a book takes more time than you think it should. <laughs> you just, you have an idea, and you write it down on paper, and then you edit it, and you edit it, and then you get it professionally edited. And so uh, getting your ideas into focus is, um, uh, is the challenge. Uh, I think that it helped me because as a social worker, as opposed to someone writing other kinds of books, I had to put cases into a coherent pattern so that both people who are an educated judge and people who maybe are semi-literate can understand what their report has to say and do it in a respectful manner, cover all the bases. You know, that's one of the things I enjoyed was taking a complicated case and making it 
straightforward in court. It may still be a complicated case, but at least trying to tell the story in a coherent fashion and what we should do. Um, the, the takeaways is that, uh, I, I, you know, I hope people understand the system better. I think child protective services, because of the confidentiality of it, is misunderstood often by many people in the public. You have people, I think, who uh, think the government is just snatching kids left and right. Uh, and other people th think that uh, social workers are just sitting at their desk doing nothing. It tends, there are people on both extremes there. And I want to tell the story that most of the time people go about their jobs. Social workers, like most people, have pride in their work and they want to do a good job. They want to do it right. And uh, most of the time they do. Yeah, absolutely. And Labs, uh, you had mentioned earlier uh, the, the phrase, best interest of the child, you know, in your line of work. I don't need to tell you that uh, you hear that phrase a lot. So when when it comes to that phrase and terminology, what do you think of when someone says, what's the best interest of a child? Well, one of the things I point out in the book is that in the legal system, they, they use best interest of the child, singular. What is the best interest of the child? And uh, a child has many best interests. A child has a best interest to have a loving mom, a loving dad, a good school, a safe neighborhood. So one of the points I think in the book I say is that we should say best interests, plural of the child. Um, just as you say, the fishes of the sea, the many fishes of the sea is grammatically correct and it connotes the riches of the ocean uh, by using the plural. I think if you use the plural, best interest of the child, it better communicates all those things that the child needs. Not, you know, a loving, safe home, but also good school, opportunities, uh, good education, mental health services if necessary, medical services, all those things that child children's need. And all those are best interests. And uh, I think the legal system defining it in the singular I, th I think that's an injustice in some ways. I think we have to look at as the plural, what are the best interests of the child? Absolutely. And, you know, in your line of work also, Lance, it's important to build relationships. And it's also important to uh, take a listening ear into your line of work to really understand and to really be best of service. So when you look at building relationships and uh, listening, what comes uh, to mind in order uh, to maximize the potential of any situation that you may be in as a social worker? Well, um, well one of the things that I was asked that in an interview question once, in, in essence, and I, and I found that sometimes you have to take care of yourself. Be, the, be sure that you're in the right frame of mind. Um, if I knew I was going to visit someone who I anticipated being a little difficult or hostile, I was made sure I had lunch, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to deal with that person on an empty stomach. So part of it has to do with uh, getting yourself uh, in a good frame of mind. Sometimes I would park a couple of blocks up from the house, the apartment where I was going, and take five minutes to settle myself down, not be all anxious. Social workers, you know, we have deadlines like everybody else and there's pressures. But I found that if I took a few moments, and I didn't do it every time, but I did it when I thought that I needed to. So you come in with a good attitude to people um, that you really want to be in that helping mode. One of the, 
one of the points I make in the book, though, is what are we doing to help the social workers stay in that helping mode? And or what are we doing to the system is not helping a lot to keep the social workers in the helping mode. There's too much bureaucracy, too much paperwork, too much silly paperwork. You've got government, you're going to have some paperwork. But one of the things I point out is that there's just the amount of paperwork has escalated during my career. And that is to a disservice because the, the um, social worker is spending too much time in front of a computer screen and not in front of, enough, uh, in front of a client. Yeah, helping people is what it's all about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's a gratifying job. It's a frustrating job at times, but it, it, it is. I'm very pleased that that was my career, and I and I had a lot of gratification from working with all sorts of people. And uh, uh, you know, not every case had a happy ending, but more enough did to make it very much worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, lads, you brought it up about really taking care of the mental health of social workers. So, how do you think? Uh, the system can better support uh, social workers to uh, better manage burnout and really get social workers reinvested in the work that they do. Well, that's one of the things I think you're right. Burnout is a very critical thing in, in child welfare. Um, civil service jobs traditionally have very low turnover. Um, if you go to a, a clerk's office or some other government agent, government person with the county or the state, you know, the DMV has relatively low turnover, but we have a lot of turnover in child welfare because of a couple of factors. One is just the frustrations of the job. The clients are, you're trained in, in graduate school to deal with difficult people. That's why you went into it. So it's not so much the clients that give you burnout. It's the burnout of lack of foster homes. Um, we also have uh, some specialized foster homes that are geared for uh, kids with uh, unique needs. And I often felt like it was like we'd have these meetings about, well, is this child going to go or that child going to go? I always felt like it was a lifeboat. You know, we have, we have seven people in the boat, but only five life jackets. That gets to be frustrating. Um, and the other thing that what I want to hit very hard on is the demand of after hours. Uh, when I was a, a social worker in Los Angeles County, for calls that came in after business hours, there's a special unit. But in smaller counties like San Luis Obispo, social workers had to work after hours. So you would work uh, 8.30 to 5, then be on call 5 to 8 a.m., 5 p.m. to 5, 8 a.m., then be on work 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. again. And uh, when you were on call, you, you made uh, 275 an hour, which some people say, oh, you got paid for doing nothing. No, uh, when my daughter was uh, on call for uh, uh, delivering uh, food, like for Uber Eats or one of those companies she was working for, she got $6 an hour for being on standby uh, for taking for takeout. And I got 275 an hour for taking out kids from bad situations. And that is very, very taxing. If you have to work all day, get interrupted during the night to respond to a call and then go work the whole day. And that is the, that is the very frustrating, especially for single parents. That was very, very challenging. Yeah, I can imagine it. And in terms of moving the needle of progress forward, what do you think 
we've made sort of uh, progress to be excited about when it comes to social work? Well, I think that, the, as I've talked already a little bit about the changes of the law, they're put a little more common sense in the law. Let me just give you one perfect example, one simple, straightforward thing. Some kids in foster care, teens, will uh, get into trouble with the law. Um, and how do you handle a foster, teen foster kid who's gotten a trouble with the law? Should, should that child be dealt with through juvenile as a probation kid? Or should that be a uh, child remain under child welfare? Now there's a new code uh, in California, we call it 241.1, that sets out rules that sets out a roadmap on how you make that decision. And there's very some very common sense things that the social worker and the probation officer now have to write a joint report, uh, describe the child's uh, success in school or not success in school, other past history, their age, things like that. So the judge makes a decide, uh, uh, an informed decision on whether the child to be treated as a perpetrator, someone who's engaged in delinquent behavior or come under and remain under child welfare. Occasionally it goes the other way too, where a child that's been under uh, juvenile court and as, a, as a, uh, a delinquent and then their parents have some bad situation and they come the other way too. But it's most of the traffic is, is from child welfare to probation though it does go the other way as well. But now we have a roadmap for those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Lads, I know whether it's absorbing our conversation this afternoon. I'm curious to ask you about creating a blueprint for anyone that may want to consider becoming a foster parent and really uh, getting into the adoption or the uh, foster care system process. I'm wondering if you can lay out a blueprint to determine whether a person can decide whether of fostering would be a good fit for them? Well, I, I think that one of the things I, I point out in the book is that fewer and fewer people are in a financial situation that they feel like they could be foster parents. Traditionally, foster parents had their own homes because fewer people uh, can afford to buy their own homes and people are renters. You can be a foster parent and be a renter. There's, there's nothing against the regulations, but it's few people who are renters all say, well, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to get my home, my own home first before I care for somebody else's children or get my life. So financially people are strapped a little bit harder. So it's, I think if there's a higher barrier for people being foster parents basically become because of financial situations, they do get financial reimbursement. Those rates have increased uh, more than they used to. Uh, there was a substantial increase and that helped foster parents, we were having a tremendous number of people dropping out simply because in California, they weren't raising foster care rates. They finally realized that it was made sense to do that. Now, as far as what qualities, people know if they like kids or not. People know that. Um, and that they, and it's usually the moms, the foster moms that drive this. Oh, gee, I'd, I'd really like to do this. If you're talking about an adoption situation, then the couple, you know, they, they're they usually more involved. You know, they that, that's a big decision. And that goes to it, there's a whole different process for adoption than foster parenting. Um, if you, if, now, of course, your foster parent can become an adoptive parent, um, but a mindset, if you're just gonna come with the mindset of adoption, that's a different route. 
Um, yeah, for sure, absolutely. And you know, it, in the first phase of your a second book, I believe that you wrote that neither the left or the right has a, a great monopoly on or ideas on how to to best manage uh, the foster care system. So I'm not asking you to get political. You can if you wish, but how um, big of a role do you think government, like the from a federal level, has to play in sort of helping to streamline the process and making it a bit more palatable for everyone involved? The federal government basically has a financial role now. The, um, if the child comes from a poor family, which is more often, most more often than not, the federal government pays the bulk of the foster care expenses. I think each county and each state has their own procedures. So I don't see a huge role for the federal government in dictating how local agencies should recruit foster parents. I don't see that as a role uh, for them, unless if it's money in. One of the things that you, you don't, see, we see some ads on TV locally here, how to be a foster parent, especially during uh, the pandemic uh, that uh, were done. And I don't know who paid for those ads. If the federal government were to kick in some money uh, and help other agencies in other areas show run ads or public service ads about becoming foster parent, that would certainly help. Um, I think, and I just want to clarify, the process, at least in California, is that Everybody has to go through the uh, criminal record checks, the background checks, the home inspection, uh, the, the uh, first aid, that kind of thing. Whether you are, you have to do all those things, whether you're a foster parent or, or an adoptive parent, there is a lot of similarities there. So, you know, that we have to, you have to do, the, the checklist is, is virtually the same. And, and Lonta, I, I'm wondering your thoughts on the positive benefits for anyone who may be exploring this in terms of building lasting relationships and really building a bond of strength and unity within children to really give them a chance to succeed in life. So I guess my question is, how important is it to continue, uh, continually recruit uh, foster parents and, I'm wondering if you can talk about the benefits from a social, emotional perspective for anyone who steps up to be a foster uh, care parent. Well, one of the things I use is that uh, they should borrow a line from the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps' recruiting slogan is, the hardest job you'll ever love. And so I think that that's the foster parenting. The people, it's a hard job, but it's one that you love. There'll be a great gratification. And uh, not only will the, the child, you have a memory of that child, whether you care for one child over and just say it's not for you, or you do it for 20 years, 30 years, as some people have, you could look back and say, yes, this is something I did important with my life. It wasn't all, you know, I, I, I did something that made a difference. And very often I, I can think of uh, one of the first kids I placed with uh, the foster mother locally in San Luis Obispo. I see her occasionally. She keeps in touch with the father. The father got custody, very unusual kind of situation. He got in, and so she's seen the kids. The kids went back to the dad. He was successful and, and they've kept in touch and it's very rewarding. That's one of those lifelong 
relationships. And she gets a lot of joy seeing the kids succeed in the father's home. And yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I'm also curious to ask you if we lived in a utopian world, and I'm fully aware that we don't, but if we did, and you could wave a magic wand and so, sort of fix one aspect of the foster care system that really sort of gets under your skin on what, whether it's the way it's managed or perceived, what would you use that power and influence uh, to sort of address? Well, it, it may be the, a minor issue in the grand scheme of things, but one of the things I, I uh, harp on quite a bit in my book is uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act. ICWA, where they call it the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA. That sounds great, but in practice has, has uh, become a, really a burdensome. Give you some historical stuff. Back in the 50s, uh, uh, there were some children, hundreds of children were removed from uh, homes of Native Americans, not because they were abused or maltreated, just because powers that be thought that kids needed a modern education. That was and that it disrupted uh, uh, the family life, disrupted their tribal connections, and it was uh, an awful thing. So <laughs> it took Congress a little while to get around to trying to redress that. But uh, I think it was in 1976 or something that they had the Indian Child Welfare Act that said, okay, if a child comes in the foster care system, you have to uh, uh, you have to give preference to placing the child with an Indian family. And you have to go through various steps, and, and that's fine. Okay. The, the, the regulations, the federal law hasn't changed at the federal level. But in practice, uh, it has become burdensome that there's pages and pages of paperwork. And no matter how remote the child's Indian ancestor, you have to resolve that uh, and see if the tribe wants. You have to send out notices. And so some, somebody might come into court and the mom might say, I belong to this, I think I belong to the Sioux tribe. And the father says, I think there might be some Cherokee ancestry. We have to notify all the Sioux tribes. There's not just one. There's, I don't remember how many Sioux there are, but there's three Cherokee tribes. So we have to notify all those tribes, wait for all of them to come back. You have to send these letters by certified mail by law. And 95 times out of 100, 98 times out of 100, they will come back does not equa does not apply. So there's all this effort, all these hours devoted to fulfilling the requirements of ICWA that could be devoted to um, you know helping people. So every hour that that the social worker devotes to ICWA is an hour not giving to something else. Uh, for sure, it's all about uh, making priorities and making sure that we put, put put children at the center of everything we do, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And lads, you know, my final until until I get to that, I actually have one more for you. You know, I lads, I'll share just a little bit about myself. So I was actually born uh, with a disability. I was born with cerebral palsy. So just out of personal interest, I'm I'm curious to know if. Placing uh, children with disabilities is somewhat easier or harder in the, in the uh, work that you do? 
I, I think it's more time intensive. Um, you know, not that many kids enter with disabilities, they, but they often may have some medical problems just in broad, broadly. Uh, very often it's babies that have uh, 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 some medical issue. The system has gotten much better at um, supporting the foster parents in that. Uh, and uh, if, you're, if you're running to taking a child to uh, the doctor four times a month, that's time that you're not working. And so uh, the system does permit uh, the social worker with administrative approval to, to give foster parents more money if there's a child that has uh, lots of appointments because of their medical situation. Um, and one of the things that the court, there's a paragraph in the court, uh, court report that medical, uh, medical information. And you know, very often kids just to say one thing, uh, dental care, foster care needs is comes up very often foster kids. Um, some foster parents are just going to say, you know, we, we would like, uh, ideally, if you have a child with some medical issues, um, you'd like maybe the foster parent to be a nurse or something, you know, like to have some specialized knowledge there that's not required. And very often, you know, I think one of the things we have to remember is that we place our first preferences to place with family. And this is kind of why I have a beef with ICWA. Our preference is to place with family anyways. We don't need ICWA to say, let's place with families. And a lot of conservatives say, well, the legal standard under, under ICWA is higher to place with families than, than for everybody else. And that's like inequality there. And I, uh, I see some argument there. But as far as disabilities, it, um, especially for rural counties, accessing services is a difficulty. I've had cases where I... I had one case where the child had to have some special ed care at UCLA and just arranging that took hours and the mother didn't drive and we had to figure out her, but it worked out fine. Uh, UCLA happened to have a hotel or um, yeah, they have like a, a, an apartment building, basically a hotel for parents of patients. So they put her up while he was in the hospital and then I uh, stayed at a hotel and I drove her and the kid back after the, after the procedures. But yeah. all those are. Yeah, fabulous. And, and Lanza, I, I'm wondering also if you had a chance to create sort of your, your ideal foster parent. And I, I'm wondering if, if there are any uh, special uh, characteristics or qualities that you look for when people express an interest or. Uh, you recruit foster parents as well. Well, um, you know, I don't want to limit it to any one thing, but one group of people that make really excellent foster parents is early retirees, because usually those people have uh, financial security. Um, and so if the foster parent check doesn't come for whatever reason, it's not a, as big of a deal. It's... Uh, and also they have gobs of time. So uh, parenting kids uh, is time intensive. Uh, foster children, it's even more time intensive. And so balancing, but most people have to work. Balancing that work uh, parent relationship is more, diff it, you know, you have to have somebody who's willing to do that. It can work. I've seen single uh, uh, moms as foster parents. I've never seen a single dad, um, but, uh, you know, you just have to go with it with open eyes. And I think that that's one of the things that 
the system is doing better now is that we're letting people come educating them about the challenges uh, and the rewards. We want them to, to run under this very satisfying thing. Um, but the time is, is the big thing there. And I would like to have people who have time and I presume that they already have the attitude of caring. So. Yeah, absolutely. And you said something just very quickly that, that piqued my interest plans. You said, you said that uh, you don't really see a single, a, a single man or a single dad step up to be a foster parent. So what do they think the key is to recruiting more men to get involved in this process? I think that the, the you're, I, I don't really know. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that the foster fathers, some of them would be very much a co-parent with the foster mother. Uh, and some of them um, were, were definitely the secondary part. I had uh, uh, one foster parent with the two gay men. Uh, that gets to other, all sorts of other issues too. Uh, but I think as far as, I don't think people are going to accept the idea uh, too often of a foster dad solo. Uh, he's going to have challenges like, you know, like every single parent. It might be a situation, again, I want to repeat that most placements are with family. And I want to get outside of just foster care. I want to kind of talk about the system that, that, that men are not successful in, in, in caring for their kids. Um, because juvenile court, we have to, we remove from both the mom and the dad. So if the dad is out of the picture, why is he out of the picture? And that's kind of why I talked about my second book, build a better bridge, uh, social policy for the 21st century. What are we doing that helps men succeed? Um, that so that they can be good uh, fathers to their kids. And so if there's a crisis in the mother's home, that the father is there. Now I've had that happen. I've had that happen where things gone downhill in the mom's home and dad's got custody. But it was much more the exception than the rule. When you look at your legacy, how do you want your legacy to be remembered? Well, I, I, uh, I want people to know that I, I think that uh, I left uh, the retired with people knowing that I cared, that, that these books, I wanted to change the system. I want to make the world a little bit better place. I, uh, I've advocated for changes that, uh, you know, if you change one policy that affects 10,000 people or a million people, that's far more effective than being a social worker. Over my career, maybe I helped a few thousand people over a 30-year career. That would be typical. But if you can change a policy and you help millions of people, that's even better. And so that's what I wanted that, that, uh, that I'm trying to do my best to get rid of ICWA increased ability of dads to be successful. Um, there's a lot of ideas about the education system in my second book and also how to, we can en enhance just outside of the child welfare system in general, how do we get men to be better better parents and more involved as fathers? I'm, I had a good dad and I think I like to think of myself as a good dad, but I know that there's a lot of men out there who aren't good dads and why aren't they? What are we doing in society? What changes can we do within constitutional changes to, to help these guys step step up to the plate? Yeah, absolutely. And Lance, uh, tell me if people want to buy the books or 
get uh, in contact with you personally? What's the best way they can do that? I have a web, website, lancehillsinger.net. Um, both books, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, In Place of the Parent is available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. You can even get it at Walmart. Uh, most of the major uh, Build a Better Bridge is available exclusively on um, Amazon. Oh, fantastic. Well, lads, I really want to uh, thank you for the work that you've committed, uh, the work that you committed your professional life to, who a chance to engage in conversation with you this afternoon about this important topic of child welfare and your work in the space. And Tal, on my behalf, my friend, is most appreciated. And I want to thank you uh, for engaging in conversation with me uh, this afternoon. Well, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me.